0: Okay, well, we're gonna be able to see just how out of practice I am today. So I would wanna invite you actually to stand with me. We're gonna read from Mark chapter four together. Um, Coming from Boston, it was a little bit more formal, so it'll take me a minute to break some habit here. So Mark chapter four, you're familiar with the story. That day... When evening came, verse 35, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Our Father in heaven, this text speaks to us because we are human and we also experience fear. The psalmist says that you know our frame. You know that we're made of dust. And as a father has compassion on his children, so you have compassion on us. There's no way that words or uh, human speech can convey the love that you have for us today. But we do ask Holy Spirit that you'd speak to us now. And I wanna invite you guys here. You know, there's distractions around us, yeah. But can you in this moment just release to God what it is that you're carrying, your own distractions, your own fears, Take a moment to do that. Invite you just to maybe open your hands as a sign of trust or surrender. We offer our lives, our hearts, our worries, our fears to you now. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. So, I'm going to start with a question, and it's this. What if today you could redefine your relationship with fear? What if by the time you left, you had a way that you were able to redefine your relationship with fear? We're living in an age where sociologists are calling the age that we live in the age of fear, I read an article this past week that cited two sources. The first source was the American Psychological Association, which stated that uh, the number of Americans that said the future of our country is extremely stressful has risen 20% between 2017 and now. The Gallup Poll actually ran a study that showed that the percentage of Americans who had experienced worry and stress during a lot of the day yesterday has risen 10%. The author, Arthur Brooks, is a professor, he's an author, he's a podcaster about happiness. And he says, if you sit next to me on an airplane, chances are the conversation is gonna move toward what makes you happy in life? How do you find happiness? But he says, more and more lately, I talk to people about what makes them afraid. We're scared. People are afraid. And it has far more to do with the current surroundings that we have. It has a lot more to do with how we take in information. It has a lot to do with being human and the human condition. We're prone to fear. So the title of the article was, Love is Medicine for Fear. And I think that's the theme of the story here today, too. Love is medicine for fear. And it's interesting that he uses the author, those two emotions, because you might be familiar, there's actually f- some core emotions. You have sadness. What else do you have in core, as far as core emotions go? Fear, anger, uh, you have joy creative energy some might throw in shame or even disgust in there but there's a school of thought that says you can actually boil all emotions down to two emotions what would they be fear and love the article is called love is medicine for fear and whether you admit it or not fear is a part of life it's the one thing that can unite all of us together in here. There's a lot of differences in this room. Do you know what one thing that we have all in common? We all face fear, whether we like it or not. It Doesn't matter if you can lift 350 pounds. It doesn't matter if you have $350 million in the bank. It doesn't matter if you can boss your coworkers around or your spouse around or your kids around. You're still afraid. You still feel fear. And to a large degree, your ability to recognize and manage fear directly impacts the quality of your life and your faith. So what would happen if you could redefine your relationship with fear today? Maybe, you might be thinking, maybe I would live less like a victim of my circumstances. And I would actually be a creator. I would be a co-creator with God about the kind of results that I want to see in my life. Maybe my relationships would be richer because I wouldn't let those things that I'm afraid, those difficult conversations that I'm often afraid to have, I wouldn't let them linger. Or maybe I would let my kids make their own mistakes and I wouldn't feel the need or the pressure to hero them all the time as I do as a dad of teenagers now. Or maybe I would start that business. Or maybe I'd be less controlling. Or I would risk more. To summarize it all, if you could redefine your relationship with fear today, you'd likely experience more freedom to love and you'd likely experience less fear. You'd experience more freedom to love God with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as you also love yourself and receive God's acceptance. And based on this story, I have to believe that that's God's desire for you today the men in this story appear to have every reason to be afraid. Until now, they've left everything to follow this rabbi, carpenter, who appears to be the chosen one, the Son of God, the Messiah. And on this particular day, verse 35 says, on that day, they saw him get into a boat, teach a large crowd of people uh, parables about what the kingdom of God is like. What happens when the rule of God begins to spread into the earth and how it changes relationships and how it changes our dreams and how it changes our joy. They also heard him use these parables about when the kingdom of God spreads and now they hear Jesus ask them, hey guys, why don't you come into the boat with me and let's go to the other side? It's not an easy ask. They have an idea about what's on the other side, but they don't really know what's on the other side. Neither do you, right? Some of you are facing big decisions. Some of you face big choices. Some of you face risk. You have an idea of what's on the other side, but you don't really know what's on the other side. For them, the other side is largely a Gentile region. It's a place divided by race and ethnicity and social status. Jesus is crossing the proverbial tracks to liberate a community from segregation and separation between Gentile and Jew. And he's about to display his power over the entire world. There's a danger, though, that they don't know anything about. On the other side lives a man who has been demon-possessed and isolated for years and wants to attack them. And to get there, they have to experience troubled waters, a storm that will potentially kill them. Ultimately, on the other side is liberation. And Jesus is heading there to free a man from evil that's enslaved him for many years. But it's not... Just the people on the other side that Jesus wants to liberate. He also wants to liberate the people inside, those who are inside the boat, his fellow travelers, and he wants to free them from the very thing that enslaves them deep, deep underneath fear. There's a reason, Mark says in verse 36, so they left the crowd. The crowd, for Mark, as he uses this phrase in his story, is used almost in a pejorative way. The crowd of the spectators, the crowd of the people, that for them, Jesus is a great addition to life. For the disciples, Jesus is becoming the meaning of life. For the disciples, Jesus is the reason. They're willing to leave it all behind and yeah. I'll go check out what's on the other side. Everyone got instruction that day, the crowd, the disciples, the people, but few got an invitation. Few got an invitation into something deeper, action. Very few times will you ever be changed by words. Very few times are people gonna be actually changed by the words that I'm even saying right now. Unless we mix it with action, unless we mix it with faith, the Hebrew writer says. And when you mix it with faith, a lot of times you find yourself in a storm that creates fear. It takes action to activate trust. And that's when Jesus turns to his disciples and says, all right, guys, let's cross over to the other side. Where might Jesus be calling you to cross over into today? I want to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit even now. What would crossing crossing over look like for me today? Would I be crossing over from fear into trust? Would I be crossing over from, I don't know, a particular way of being into a whole new way of showing up for my family, for my friends, for my co-workers, whatever it might be. Verse 36 through 38 shows us a behavior and a belief that can take root when we don't redefine our relationship with fear. In verse 36, it tells us, number one, we begin to insulate, and number two, we begin to speculate. Verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with him. That's a line that's often, miso- it's, it's often overlooked. There were other boats. In my life, the way that it's typical for me to show up is that I'm the star player in the role, the movie about me. And everybody else is a supporting cast member. There's other boats in the water. The reason why this line is often overlooked in the story is because it's often overlooked in our story as well. Everyone in here is facing troubled waters. There's other boats in here that are experiencing incredible times of turbulence. We need other boats with us in the storm and the other boats need me. The other boats need you. But because of my doubt, because of my fear, because of our addictions, because of our struggles, we start to want to isolate it's just easier to not show up and be around the other people because they're just not going to get the things that I'm going through. We're made to travel through troubling waters with other travelers. But then not only do we, are we tempted to isolate, we're tempted to insulate. You see, fear can cause us to move away from curiosity around what others are feeling and how they're thinking and to make caricatures of other people to the point where I only associate with people in my boat. I'll only associate with people who think like I think. And I villainize the people who are in the other boats around me. Friends, in this human story, we need other boats. And it requires a level of curiosity, a level of moving from fear. See, when I'm living in fear, I'm in a place where life is happening to me and I'm defensive, I'm closed off, and I'm committed to being right. And if I'm willing to be curious and say, Jesus, I trust you, I can move from fear and I can then become curious, open, and committed to learning about you and your story and what makes you tick. Not only do they isolate, verse 37 through 38 tells us that if we're not redefining our relationship with fear, we'll also speculate. It says, A fierce windstorm arose, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? I admire their courage to say what they're really thinking. Don't you care that we're drowning? We never redefine fear by pretending it's not there. How many of you have asked God that question this year? Don't you care? How many of you have asked God that question this week? Or maybe this morning? If you've never asked that question, you probably have never been a Christian for very long. The trouble is that they're no longer trusting in Jesus' promises. They're now speculating about God's care and God's control. But it's all a part of their growth. It's part of mine too. I remember sitting with my spiritual director in Boston. It was July of last year. We were supposed to move at the end of the month. We had planned our move after eight years of living and leading in Boston to move back to California. It was July and people had even prophesied over us and said, you're going to know where you're going by this month. That month came and went. I've since cut those people off in my life. No, it's kidding. And I'm there with my spiritual director in this monastery in the city with this monk. And... Um, His name is Brother Lake. How fitting is that? It's just awesome. I don't know why it's fitting, it's just great. And he asked me, Al, what are you sensing? What do you associate your story with right now? What do you most relate to in scripture? And I said, Lake, you know that part in the Bible when the disciples feel like their boat is about to be overwhelmed and they're gonna drown, they're gonna sink? I got a family of five, man. We're in the middle of a pandemic, we don't know where we're gonna move, I'm trying to start a business in the midst of a global pandemic, and uh, we have to be out of our apartment by the end of the month to move, drive across country with a German short hair pointer in the back of the car. In a car that's misfiring by the way. And what I feel like is, don't you care that we're drowning? What troubling waters are facing you right now? What are the waves that just don't seem to end? They flood the boat, they flood your heart, they flood your mind at two in the morning, and you wake up and you think, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus wants them and us to redefine our relationship with fear. I want you to listen. Just close your eyes and listen to this quote from Brennan Manning on his book called Ruthless Trust. When the shadow of Jesus' cross falls across our lives in the form of failure, rejection, abandonment, betrayal, unemployment, loneliness, depression, the loss of a loved one, when we're deaf to everything but the shriek of our own pain, when the world around us suddenly seems a hostile, menacing place, at those times we may cry out in anguish, how could a loving God permit this to happen? At such moments, the seeds of distrust are sown. It requires heroic courage to trust in the love of God, no matter what happens to us. Remember, Love is the medicine for fear. It's not just the people on the other side that Jesus is looking to liberate. It's also the people on the inside. It's you. It's me. It's fellow travelers. Jesus answers their prayer without them even asking, right? They just say, don't you care? Jesus gets up and calms the storm. And then he asks them a question. Jesus allows his friends to enter into the storm to redefine their relationship with fear. And if that means letting them go through an incredibly scary time of trial, of troubling waters, then so be it. Because his love is the ultimate medicine for their fear. He's liberating them and he's liberating you. Will you allow him? Let it happen. And then Jesus helps them redefine their relationship with fear by calling them into what Brennan Manning calls ruthless trust. The word ruthless means, the word ruthless means without without mercy, without pity. And he uses that word intentionally because often what gets in the way of my trust is self pity. I want to feel sorry for myself. I want you to feel sorry for myself. I want to lead with all the ways that you should understand the pain that I'm experiencing. And we need other boats, right? But there's other times when I'm acting in the place of a victim and it's blocking the power with which God has anointed you or me by his Holy Spirit to say, you're with me and I'm with you. Ruthless, without mercy, without pity, without falling into a victim mentality. And it's only as we look to the one who trusted his father perfectly that we begin to move from self-pity as we look to Jesus. What is fear? Fear, if you put it in an acronym, somebody has called it, it's false evidence appearing real or false expectations appearing real. It's what happens when I'm visualizing a future event that hasn't happened and it's impacting how I'm thinking and how I'm feeling in the present moment. So how do we begin to redefine our relationship with fear? I'm going to give you three ways of being that we begin to redefine this relationship. Verse 40 says, the first way we do this is as an investigator, after Jesus calms the storm, he then asks them a question. What's the question He asks them? Why are you so afraid?" I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't tell them, "Don't be afraid," although there's several places in Scripture, right? Some have said 365, I don't know where God says, "Don't fear." But in this very specific, very important moment of their formation, Jesus doesn't come to them like an accuser or like a judge in any way. He comes to them like an investigator and he asks them, why are you so afraid? What's behind it? I imagine to these disciples, the question can feel insensitive, right? They have evidence. They have every reason it appears to have real fear. But in this, this moment, Jesus isn't allowing that for them. He's asking them, why are you so afraid? It's not that they shouldn't be afraid in times of danger. You have an amygdala, right? The tiny little portion of the part, front part of your brain that helps you scan the the horizon for threat and know when you should jump out of the street or run from the lion or whatever it might be. But in this case, Jesus realizes that they've misplaced their trust. That's at the root of their fear. And they're assuming that Jesus doesn't care. Remember the Psalm that says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. At times in our life, the reason why I fear is because my chariots and horses don't seem to be coming through. There's another part in Luke where Jesus says, he told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they looked down their noses at others. Self-righteousness is another form of misplaced trust. And it causes me to look down on others. You can often follow where your trust is or why you're so afraid by asking three questions What am I afraid of losing? What am I trying to hide? And what am I trying to prove? What am I afraid of losing? What am I trying to hide? What am I trying to prove? Love is medicine for fear. And Jesus lovingly asks them, why are you so afraid? As a dad, I dimly understand this idea, right? My uh, One of our daughters has uh, dealt with uh, a fear of ants. For some reason, when we moved to California, this girl just was terrified of ants. She probably saw like two ants in her room. But every night, ever since then, she will not go to bed without checking under her bed, under the pillows, in the closet, around the corner. Then we say this prayer, which sounds more like an incantation about uh, ants and bugs and mommy and dad, like it is just this rope prayer. And every time Nina and I say, babe, There's no evidence of any ants. And she'll say, but are you sure? Like, how do I know I can trust you? And every time she just doesn't trust us. She still checks under the bed, under the pillows, says the incantation, all the things. But here's the point. As her dad, I love her just as much, even though she doesn't trust that I'm telling her there's no ants. In fact, I probably feel my fatherliness toward her even more. I just want more for her. I want her to be free of her fear of ants. Because it's just going to get weird at some point if she continues this behavior. First, the way that we redefine our relationship to fear as as an investigator, but secondly it's as a worship worshiper. It says verse forty one, they were terrified and they asked each other Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Why are they terrified? Because in ancient civilizations, it was only deity figures that could calm the chaos of the water, of the waves, of the wind, of creation, of nature. And they're experiencing what some call numinous awe, right? It's what happens when people saw the Beatles. Same thing. Just fall down. You start crying and weeping. And Yahweh was the one who parted the sea in Scripture. And it was the Spirit of God that hovered over the chaos of the ocean in Genesis 1. And here is this 33-year-old carpenter who fell asleep and they woke him up who's commanding the wind and the waves to be still. It's that same terrifying glory that actually gives them the courage to begin to trust again. They're witnessing, they're seeing the dual nature of Jesus. In his humanity, he sleeps. In his deity, he speaks to the wind and the storm. Hebrews tells us that Jesus had to become like his brothers in all ways, like we are. So he suffered himself and was tempted himself so that he could always come to the aid of those who were tempted as well. And he's also the express image of the invisible God. You see, there's two basic reasons why we fear, sociologists say. One is, we're afraid of not being enough. And two, we're afraid that if because I'm not enough, people won't love me fully. And in this passage, it calms both of their fears. It shows us this carpenter this Messiah is enough. And two, because he's enough, I never have to fear that he doesn't leave me or forsake me. Brennan Manning again says, if the night is bad and our nerves are shattered and darkness comes and pain is all around and the Holy One seems absent and we want to know the true feelings of the inscrutable God toward us, all we have to do is turn and look at Jesus. And because he's enough, I don't fear not being loved. Love is medicine for fear. And scripture says perfect love casts out all fear. Our trust in Jesus grows as I shift from making self-conscious efforts to try to be really good to allowing myself to be loved as I am and not as I should be. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And one theologian says, the definition of trust remains the most meaningful of all, the courage to accept your acceptance before God through faith in Jesus. Trust is your gift back to God and he finds it so enchanting that Jesus died for love of it. The way that you love God back is through ruthless trust. It's a gift to God. And when you don't trust, does that change his love? It doesn't for me as a dad, and I'm a sinful man. It just means that I want more for my girl. John, the disciple known as the apostle of love says this, we ourselves have known and put our trust in God's love toward ourselves. So we come as an investigator, and I'm going to give you a practice right now to investigate where your fear lies. We come as a storyteller, we come as a, a worshiper, but thirdly and lastly, we come as a storyteller and this is what helps us redefine our fear. We begin to retell the story of the most ruthless trust of all, that Jesus on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the very same moment, when he feels as though God is far from him, he says, into your hands, I'm entrusting my entire spirit. Jesus Christ, he displays the most ruthless trust ever lived in history. And you then become united to the one who displays perfect trust. Jesus is the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. He or she who trusts in me will never die, the biggest fear of all. Do you trust this, he says? As we retell the story as a storyteller of God's work in our lives, we have to go back to scripture when God parted the sea, when it says his way was through the sea. His path was through the mighty waters. There's times in life when God is working and it seems impossible. But just as Jesus, his way was in the water. It was in the storm and I couldn't even see it. Every year, me and a group of friends, we go away and uh, we meet with a group of Christian leaders and we invite an older, wiser, sage leader to come and speak with us and share with us. In this past week, I was there and um, we invited a person who came and shared. And if I were to share with you the details, it's a well, fairly known leader. And if I were to share with you the events of this person's life, man, it sounds like a horror film. There's no reason why he shouldn't fear. And I appreciated him as he sat in front of the fireplace in this living room, just talking to us about the lessons that he's learned and the doubts that he's had in times of despair. One of the significant lessons that he shared with us is that I'm learning that I don't have to be afraid. It seems loving to my kids that I should be afraid for them. Like I feel like the responsible thing to do, like the activity that I should do is to be afraid. But I'm learning that I don't have to be afraid. And I'm also learning that good situations in life doesn't make a great life. It doesn't, it's not what you need in order for a great life to happen. And then in tears, he quoted this section that I'll end with from Lord of the Rings. He said, you know that part in Lord of the Rings when they can't go on anymore? And Frodo says, I can't do this, Sam. And Sam says, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now, folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't because they were holding on to something. And Frodo says, what are we holding on to, Sam? And Sam says, that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. What are you holding on to? That God is good. And that Jesus is worth fighting for. But maybe even more than that, that he is holding on to you. And that he's liberating you from the deepest parts of enslavement called fear. Because love is medicine for fear. As we close, I'm gonna ask you to take a, what 12 steps in their fourth step called a fearless and searching moral inventory. And here's what I'm gonna invite you to do. i want gonna invite you to take out a piece of paper or use your phone in the notes and create three columns. On the first column, you're gonna list with the Spirit's help those areas, if you're willing to dare to be honest, that you're afraid of today, that you're experiencing fear with, In the second column, you're going to write out areas that maybe you can take action in as you ask the Spirit's help. And in the third column, you're just going to say, Lord Jesus, into your hands I entrust this very thing. Three columns, fear, action, prayer, or trust. Our Father, we thank you for your words to us. We say with the psalmist, but I trust in the Lord. I say, you are my God. The course of my life is in your hands. Give us grace to ruthless trust. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Right now, we're just gonna have some quiet music playing. This is a time for you to be with God in stillness. We're just gonna take a couple minutes for this. And first thing you're going to do is now you're going to begin to write down those areas that are, that would potentially cause a person to fear (laughs) that are in your life. Remember, we don't redefine it by faking as though it doesn't exist. Go ahead and record those now. In the second column, you're going to begin to write down what actions would God be speaking to you to take, perhaps? And as I step down, continue this inventory, right? As an investigator, why are you so afraid? What am I afraid of losing, hiding, or needing to prove? Surrender those very things to God. Invite him into it. And allow yourself to listen to the voices of the children who are there. Because that's how God relates to you. Like a child, say, Abba, I'm scared of ants. <laughs> I need your help. Can I trust you? And see what the Spirit might say to you. Let's turn to Him now. The carpets are available for you to come. Take a posture of kneeling or sitting. You can remain in your seat. Be still with God. If you're new to this whole thing, just enjoy the peace of the moment. Continue the moral inventory with the Holy Spirit.